Well, good morning, Bethel. I don't know about you guys, but I'm sore. Uh, I have spent the summer, uh, you know, like you guys, fly fishing and uh, mountain biking and four-wheeling, and the other day was berry picking. And you wouldn't think you'd get sore from picking berries, but you do. And uh, yesterday was honey harvest, so we got 13 quarts of honey yesterday, and we're not sharing with you. So... Um, so we're just trying to uh, drink the last of the good summer that we've had. It has been a good one, hasn't it? Just beautiful weather. Uh, I want to let you guys know that our Czech Republic team uh, are home. They're home. So that's, we're glad for that. And are any of you, any of them in here right now? I think most of them are at first service. If you're here, raise your hand. Czech Republic team. They really do go to church. Promise you. Most of them are in first service. So you're going to hear from them uh, in a couple of weeks. We're going to let them... Just get home and uh, get into the time zone and uh, collect their stories. And uh, I think it's uh, September 17th is the day that we have set aside for them to share. So you can be looking forward to that. So if you would, bow with me and we'll pray and ask God to help us as we come to his word. Our Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, This is the day the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We'll rejoice in the overcast skies and the rain that falls and waters the earth in the coolness that comes in, especially appreciating the cool breeze right now. (laughs) Uh, Lord, you are good to us all the time. And uh, when we think about what you have done for us, that you have brought us out of the realm of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, That you see us not as sinners, though we continue to fail. But you see us as saints, because you look upon us and see the righteousness of Christ, not our mistakes. We rejoice, and we have to gather and praise and worship our God. Lord, I pray that this would not just be a perfunctory act for anybody here, but a genuine act of worship because of what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. So Lord, we ask now as we look at your word that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that your Holy Spirit who resides within us would take the truths of your word and drive them down deep and apply them where they need to be felt and worked on and uh, obeyed. So transform us now with your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew 19, uh, we're going to start at verse 1 there. We've actually been in Matthew for about 10 months now. Um, maybe it feels like longer, but that's how long we've been there. And uh, I want to just kind of take a few moments this morning and remind us of some of the features of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, that's just the wind, that's all. Uh, just some of the features of Matthew, because when you spend a long time in a book like this, 10, 10 months going through a book, and you're looking at each verse and working and plotting your way through, it's easy to lose the forest for the trees. And I kind of want to lift our, our perspective up a little bit and make sure we see the broader picture of what's happening in the book of Matthew as well. So if you remember, the book of Matthew is written uh, by a Jewish man to a Jewish audience to show them that Jesus was king of the Jews, the Messiah, the one who was to come and to redeem Israel. Uh, and popular Jewish thought at the time of Jesus' arrival was that the Messiah, the anointed one, would come and deliver Israel particularly from the oppression of the Romans. And that that this Messiah would emerge immediately as a strong political figure. That's what they were expecting. 
And that is a bit at variance with what God had planned in Jesus Christ. And so Matthew is carefully portraying Jesus as God's Messiah, King Jesus, one who would do more than just deliver his people from political oppression, but rather would deliver all of mankind from the cosmic uh, condition of sin. And that was the bigger and broader picture uh, that Messiah was to come for. His kingdom would be inaugurated in his first coming and fully consummated in his second coming. And so because the manner of Jesus' arrival was different than what a lot of uh, the Jewish community was expecting, Matthew is careful in his gospel to present proofs and evidence that would be compelling to his specific audience. And so we've looked at this extensively. He lays out prophecy. He shows the nature of Jesus' teaching. He shows the ministry of healings and miracles, all of the marks of Messiah uh, that the Jewish people were looking for. All of this to show him as one who was qualified, even though he didn't quite meet their preconceived expectations. As Matthew does this, he is not committed to a strict chronological telling of the story. And that's why sometimes when we open up the Gospel of Matthew and we read something and then say we were to look at Luke, we might go, wait a minute, I thought that event happened over here. Because Luke is more chronological. Matthew tells his story basically around the the five sermons uh, throughout the book. The whole book is organized around five discourses of Jesus. And then there's some narrative material that's kind of plugged in between that's relevant and ties the whole thing together. That's what Matthew's commitment is. Is too. And so again, because Jesus didn't fit the preconceived expectations of the Jewish community, uh, the religious leaders uh, particularly were against him. They rejected him. And they were constantly looking for ways to trap him and to expose him as a fraud. And so at this particular point in Matthew chapter 19, the hostility between the religious leaders and Jesus is high. In fact, Jesus has prepared his disciples, predicting to them, telling them that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he would be arrested, betrayed, that he would be killed at Jerusalem, that these things would all occur. But even though he has told them that this is going to be the case, here we find Jesus with his face set to Jerusalem to go right to this errand for which God has sent him. And then along the way, we pick up here in verse 19, we find the religious leaders cornering him and asking some trapping kinds of questions. So if you'll look with me in Matthew 19, 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, now at this particular point, I'm going to employ a little bit of help because I I want you to remember this point here. This is important, so I brought somebody in to help me. This is Admiral Akbar from Star Wars. And you know his classic line, of course, which is? Good. You guys know Star Wars better than you know the Bible. I don't know about this. I was critiqued after first service because I referred to him as General Akbar, and I was promptly told that I had demoted him. Admiral Akbar. And his classic line, of course, in Star Wars is, it's a trap. You got it. Okay, that's the only thing you're going to remember all sermon long. I know it. 
The religious leaders are absolutely trying to trap Jesus with what is a loaded question, okay? And here's why it's loaded. First of all, Jesus is in a politically charged climate. He has just entered the jurisdiction uh, of a man by the name of Herod Antipas. Uh, Herod was the relative of Herod the Great, the one who was first trying to kill this baby Jesus who had come along, right? And when Herod the Great had died, he divided up his kingdom to his, or his rule basically to his four sons. One of those was Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas ruled in the region of Galilee where Jesus is coming from. And then also this area of Perea. I have a little map for you. Here you go. We're talking about these lime green areas here. Galilee kind of up in the north. And Jesus has left that area. He's crossed over the Jordan River down into that uh, lower area, Perea. And if you see at the bottom of that is the location of Herod Antipas's palace. So Jesus is leaving one safe region under his rule and heading, heading into a more dangerous region as he gets closer and closer to the palace uh, of Herod Antipas. And the reason this is a problem is because there was a scandal going on. So now I've got all your ears. Ooh, a scandal. What is it? Well, Herod Antipas went to visit his brother Philip and while there convinced Philip's wife to leave him and to come and to be his wife. And so they had moved back home, and this was the condition at the particular time. So this was the royal family scandal of the day. Nothing has changed, right? So Jesus has now traveled into this territory where this scandalous couple are living, where Herod Antipas is ruling. Now, if you were reading the Gospel of Matthew from beginning to end as you would a novel, and you were just kind of reading your way along, this would pop out uh, on the text to you because you would remember, wait a minute, Herod Antipas, we've encountered him before. He was the one who killed John the Baptist. And he killed John the Baptist particularly because John addressed this issue of this illicit relationship that he had. That's why John was beheaded. And so here we have this question that is being asked of Jesus about uh, how he feels about divorce and this certain issue of marriage here uh, to try to get Jesus to respond to this. As you can see, as Admiral Akbar would tell us, it's a trap. It's a trap. What they are trying to do, the Pharisees, by asking Jesus this question, are they are hoping that he would answer in the same way as John the Baptist and suffer the same consequence as John the Baptist. This is their attempt at death by Herod. Okay? That's what they're after here. Now, they're also, this was not just a, um, a loaded issue because of the politics of the region. It was loaded for other reasons as well. It was kind of the hot-button debate of the day. Uh, we have these same kinds of discussions today. Next time, uh, ladies, next time you're at a mom's playgroup or something like that, just ask the question, should we vaccinate our children or should we not? <laughs> just pull the pin in that grenade and toss it in the room, you know, see what happens, just for fun. Or you're in church and someone asks a question, okay, quick show of hands, Rep Republican or Democrat, right? Nobody look around. Homeschool or public school? Ford or Chevy? Notice jo uh, Dodge didn't even make the uh, question asking. <laughs> Just let that linger for a bit. <laughs> Skidoo or Polaris? Maybe more Alaska questions here. Or maybe the stickiest one of all, right? Chitna or Kenai Reds? 
So we have our hot button debates. We have our issues and our discussions and and this community did as well. And one of those discussions, one of the highly debated issues was the nature of divorce as taught by the law. And the passage that's being referenced here is Deuteronomy 24. And so popular rabbis of the day would have their halakha or their curriculum, their interpretation of the law that they would teach. Two popular rabbis of the day, Shammai and Hillel. Shammai was the conservative of the day. And he basically taught that divorce was only an option if there was some kind of sexual immorality or indecency. So he taught the conservative view. Hillel taught a more liberal, he was a liberal of the day, and he taught that a person could divorce, a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. And that would include even the spoiling of dinner. Or, and these things are spelled out, or even if a man simply found that another woman was more attractive to him. And that's what Hillel taught of the day. So the question that's posed to Jesus here, this isn't just a theoretical question, right, by the Pharisees who are like, oh good, Jesus is here. We can ask him what we've been wondering about. Jesus, is it possible for a husband to divorce his wife? Is there any reason at all that, why he might do that? The question that's being asked essentially is, do you support the liberal Rabbi Hillel in his teaching that one could divorce their wife for any and every reason? And that's what the language is trying to capture. It's a specific position, any and every reason divorce. And by asking it in this way, they're trying to, again, as Admiral Akbar would say, trap him. Because if he says, yes, I do support Hillel, he's a heretic. He can be dismissed, right? If he says no, then he's committing political suicide, quite literally. His life is on the line with Herod Antipas having come out and challenged the very nature of the scandalous relationship that Herod and Herodias are in. And so that is what is at stake here. It's a trap, not just because it's a tough question, but because there are life or death consequences hanging in the balance based upon how he responds to this. And Jesus shows his brilliance. And I just want to pause at that point for a moment because we often don't talk about the brilliance of Jesus or even think about him as a smart person. We think about him of all kinds of other things, but Jesus is amazingly smart, the smartest man to ever live. Can we say that? Yes, we can, is the answer. And what he does here is he basically shows his brilliance by not taking, not accepting the false dichotomy that's been presented to him. He won't accept that by just trying to line himself up with one of the two rabbinic schools of thought. Instead, what he does is he evades this politically charged uh, environment by teaching wonderfully about what is it that God is doing with marriage. The one who has created it, the one who has made it. What is he doing with mankind and what is it that he's doing with marriage? What is the created order of things and then let's let the chips fall where they, where they will. And this is the way Jesus approaches the question and the beauty of his answer is not just that he effectively dodges the bullet but we as sort of a secondary audience get to see a timeless principle about what about the nature of mankind and about what God is doing with marriage and that's what we're going to focus on this morning Jesus teaches about the nature of mankind and about marriage verse four haven't you read he replied I love those, you know, jabby questions. Haven't you read this, you Pharisees? That at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother 
and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, a couple of things. I'm just going to take these four statements that he makes, and I want to just unpack each one as it relates to us today. First of all, God has purposefully made mankind male and female. We are purposefully made as gendered beings. And that is, it's not an accident. It's not an unfortunate reality. It's not like an extra chromosome fell in the soup and, you know, now we've got a different kind over here. God intentionally made us male and female. This pleases him. This is good. And I have to say this week, just kind of studying the passage, you know, this is a common passage. We find it in Genesis. We find it repeated throughout the scriptures. And it's easy to just read past this and sort of take it for granted. I think for a long time I've taken it for granted. But to today, hearing this just stated matter-of-factly in the scriptures that God made us male and female was really good to hear it stated explicitly. Because our culture has taken this for granted. Our culture has been dismissive of gender. Our culture, in an effort to try to level the playing field, is trying to remove any distinction between genders. And they're robbing humanity of what are some really beautiful and good things that God has put there for a purpose. And so it was good just to see this again and be reminded that this is God's purpose. It's not an ill-fitting restriction or an unfortunate reality. It's very, very good, and God did it purposefully. The diversity of God's creation is male and female is to be celebrated, and If I could just be a little bit snarky here for a moment, just for a brief moment. You know, the homosexual community, which wants to hold up the sign, celebrate diversity, is not celebrating diversity. They're celebrating sameness. It is God who is celebrating diversity by making male and female. And he tells us in his word that this uniquely images him in such a way. We are made image bearers of God individually as male, individually, as female, and as we come together, there is a complementary nature in which we show the image of God and reveal the image of God in ways that we would not see otherwise. It is purposeful, and it is good, and it is God who is celebrating diversity, if I can put that little spin on it here. I've said this before, but if we were to kind of maybe look at it this way, if we had a world that was all men everywhere all the time, right, Not only would we all starve to death and it'd be a smelly place, we would be imaging God less. He would be less represented in only that way. And similarly, if we had only a world of all women, all the time, everywhere, it would smell lovely and be very organized, I think. But we would be imaging God less. And so there is something of the image of God that is revealed more through the diversity of gender and their complementary coming together in covenant marriage uh, than otherwise. And um, I think what's especially frustrating, if I can just identify with some emotions with you guys, I think what's especially frustrating as a Christian in this age today is that we're being asked by the secular culture to essentially hold two contradictory opinions about things. On the one hand, they want us to accept with them that gender is insignificant and doesn't matter. Then on the other hand, they want us to say, uh, but if you were to challenge them and say, well, yes, it does, then they would say, how dare you tell me what my gender is, right? 
So we're, we're, we're asked to sort of help hold these two contradictory thoughts at the same time or to affirm them what they want. And I think one of the things that it shows is that really gender is not the, differ- is not the issue here. But the real heart issue is this, the affirmation of the absolute autonomous self. That is the issue of the day. Gender and all of the difficulties in the debate going around with this issue is a secondary issue. The primary issue is nobody wants to be confined, defined, or subservient to any other being. That is a godless world, and that is a world that is headed for trouble. Um, There are at least two common objections that I hear to the teachings of the Scripture. Uh, As a pastor, I hear these a lot, and I thought I'd just kind of throw them out there for your consideration. Uh, One question that comes to me uh, oftentimes when we're teaching about the beauty of God's design as male and female um, is they will say something like, well, I know many same-sex couples who have greater harmony and happiness than heterosexual couples. Therefore, in their mind, justifying it. And, you know... My, my reply to them is very often something along the lines of God is not just trying to create harmony in a relationship. It has a much bigger picture with marriage. And as we'll talk about more, marriage is a teacher to us. It is instruction and, in fact, I think a primary aspect of God's sanctifying process in our lives that he's brought somebody else into a relationship, a covenant relationship that is very different than we are, complementary to us, to challenge us with some things and to be what we're not and to confront us with those things. Uh, so marriage is not just designed to make life a little more palatable on planet Earth. God has a bigger picture with it. Secondly, we hear this question all the time. Well, how is it that we can restrict love? Well, there's a lot of things here. First of all, we're not restricting it. God is, but let's move past that and say, and another issue is we restrict love all the time. Not any aged person can love intimately any aged person, right? So we place barriers and boundaries on love all the time. We do that because this is a civilization, and we curb our desires and appetites, that which is good and wholesome and right. So we do that all the time. So these are just a couple things that I might want to put out there to equip you with as you're talking with people about this hot debate of our times. But at the end of the day, what I simply want to affirm here What Jesus is teaching is that male and female is God's design. It's purposeful. It's good. That differentiation is good. That complementary nature images God in a way that we would not see otherwise. It is God's good design. Secondly, here's something that Jesus teaches. That the marriage relationship is to trump all other family loyalties. The text says that one is to leave their father and mother and be united to their wife, and the two are to become one flesh. And it goes on to say, what God has joined, let no one separate. And I think this was probably a bigger issue for, for some people at, at, at a certain time, a certain day and age, maybe the leaving and cleaving aspect. You've heard this before, where to leave a family or to cleave to uh, your new spouse and sort of create a new family unit. And I think that was a struggle uh, for times in the past. Uh, I don't think that's the bigger issue uh, of our day or the way this gets expressed today. I think the bigger issue in our day is that the elevation of children has created an incredible trap within marriages. And I want to kind of expound on this a little bit. I think what we're finding in our culture is that all of our time and our energy and our money is going to our children to a fault. 
So what happens is couples leave their family of origin, they come together to be married, and they very quickly take the marriage and make it subservient to this new family of the children who become primary. And these well-intentioned marriages instead end up having what I would call these illicit intruders, their kids, (laughs) because they have idolized them. So let me kind of put it in very personal ways. When a woman sees her primary identity as a mother and not as a wife, when her self-worth is determined by her kids and their performance and how they're doing, she ends up supplanting her husband and her primary affection for him. And for the men, I think it looks like this. When a man sees himself primarily as a breadwinner, an earner, a provider, one who is to provide all of the options to the family that they want, all of the things he didn't get when he was young, and he sees himself primary, primarily in that way, then he has idolized the kids in the career but has abandoned his wife in his covenant relationship with her. And this, I think, is the issue of our day, where Jesus is talking about this husband-wife relationship within the family is to be sort of, is to trump all other relationships. Yes, it can be applied to our family of origin, but I think where we need to pay attention to it is because we have elevated kids so much. That's a little bit of a twist that I would put on it for today. And I would tell you this, that one of the best things, moms and dads, one of the best things that your kids can hear from you and observe in you is that your relationship, your love and affection for one another would be more important than even your relationship with your kids. And that is backwards in our culture. I know I'm, I'm pushing against the grain there. If your kids learn that, you will be teaching them one of the best things. Uh, Amy and I will frequently, will, I'll come home from work, I'll start, usually I sit down at the counter, we're talking. Uh, usually, if I'm honest, she's preparing most of dinner. Sometimes I help confessionally, he said that. The kids will come in and have all kinds of questions and want to chat about whatever. And frequently we say, get out of here. We're talking. This is our time to connect. And they know that that's just one way that we show the kids that this is primary. They're secondary. Because you know what? In a few years, they're going to go away and have spouses of their own. And if Amy and I haven't worked on this between us in 25 years and suddenly the kids are gone, we're in for a real shock. A husband and wife relationship is primary. Thirdly here, and this is kind of like one of those duh points, but we're going to work through it anyways. Sexual intimacy is one of the great and powerful gifts of marriage. And uh, I think there are few things, there are few things within a marriage relationship that are more powerful to either build up or tear down the relationship than sexual intimacy. And again, I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't know, but maybe you just need to hear it this morning to think about it and to ponder it and to ask the Lord to bring to your attention what you need to be paying attention to at home. But it is sexual intimacy is the one aspect in our marriage that is to be uniquely met by our spouse. Lots of other emotional needs and other needs in the relationship can be met uh, can be met by other people, such as friendship, common interests, recreation, work projects. Right? Other friendship networks can support us in these ways, but sexual intimacy is unique and exclusive to marriage. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, not just those in it. 
The marriage bed, I added that bit, by the way. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And in fact, the Apostle Paul says that because this is uniquely to be met in marriage, that husbands and wives, because sexual intimacy is unique within the marriage relationship, husbands and wives should be generous with one another in this regard, caring and sensitive for one another. He tells us explicitly not to deprive each other except for a time for prayer, to devote oneself to prayer. Otherwise, temptation might come in. The reality is that when our sexual intimacy in some way or in any way is misplaced, either through lust or pornography or an emotional affair or a sexual affair, that we bring some of the greatest harm possible to our relationship with our spouse. It is one of the most powerful things for either building up and creating trust or for tearing down and destroying it. So guard it carefully. The fourth point here that Jesus seems to teach is this. The husband and wife are joined by God. If we think about this one-ship issue, we know that the two become one. And we hear this line in weddings all the time, right? What God has joined, let no one separate. It's not just a wedding line. It's God's line. And we tend to think about our relationships and our oneness that has been created. We think about it as something that we ourselves have fostered, right? We've communicated, we've solved problems, we've served, we've sacrificed, we've spent time, we've created oneness, we facilitated it. But the text says that this is actually something that God has done. He has joined husband and wife. Therefore, it's not our prerogative to tear apart God's creative project. What God has joined, let no one separate. So let me illustrate this in a very juvenile kind of way. Our kids uh, have all kinds of creative projects going on at home. And if one of our children had a project going in the home, in the living room, maybe a big fort or something with blocks or something of this nature, and this project had been created and kind of worked on and developed all day, and then one of the other children to just come in and decide that, you know, I'd like to tear that down for, you know, no particular reason. Or even if they thought they had a good reason. There's going to be a war, right? Is this just our, our house? There's going to be a war. This was their project. You don't get to destroy it. This is juvenile logic. This is God's creative project. He has made two one. You don't get to come in and knock it down. It's not your prerogative. Now, having said that and said that as firmly as I can, we do get to the point of the passage here where there is an exception for divorce. Okay, all eyes, all ears on. What is this exception, right? So Jesus deals with an exception for divorce. The question comes to him, verse 7. Why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay, a couple things here. First of all, we see Jesus is clear. God's design for marriage here is for a lifetime. In fact, if you're looking for a very pithy statement uh, to kind of summarize the whole message this morning, here it is. One man, one woman, one marriage, one lifetime. Okay, there's the whole thing kind of summarized in one sentence. But it seems to me 
Now listen carefully to this. It seems to me that Jesus is showing here that there are some things worse than divorce. And essentially, I think the way he unpacks it is this. If one is going to disobey the Lord and divorce their spouse without cause, okay, then they had at least go about it in a way that provides closure for the one being left. And I think that's what Jesus is kind of getting at here. In other words, divorce without cause is disobedience. So let me just be really clear about that. That's what the scriptures teach. And you can be upset with me about that if you want, but really I'm just I'm going to point you right back to the word here. Um, but leaving a spouse without closure seems to be even worse. For the one being left, it seems that abandonment is worse than the finality of divorce. And so while divorce isn't the advised thing here, it seems to me that it's just one step up from abandonment. And so I think what Jesus is teaching here is that there needs to be, if that's going to happen and someone's going to do that, then a certificate needs to be provided to bring closure The certificate here is not something that's advised. It's just that it is evidence of the hard-heartedness of the ones leaving, even though it's not God's good design. And again, the certificate of divorce in this case, I think it's not to help the person leaving. It's to help the person who was left, such that there is an end. I think that's what Jesus is showing here about what Moses permitted. What we find here is that, and this is important, the only legitimate reason for divorce is for, and I've given you the word in the Greek, porneia. Porneia. Uh, the question often comes, what is porneia then, right? Let me tell you this. Some of your, your translations will translate this differently. Some of you have marital unfaithfulness, adultery. Some will have fornication or premarital sex. Uh, and then some of your translation, I think actually the best is those of you who have the NIV have the right translation this morning. Uh, because it says sexual immorality. It's more general. And to be honest with you, that is what the word porneia means. It is a general word. It has a wide range of meaning, uh, and it means sexual immorality, and there are various kinds. Premarital sex, fornication, that's one of those. Adultery is one, and there could be any nature of illicit sexual acts that would fit within that as well. Here's what's important. For those of your translations who simply say marital unfaithfulness or adultery, I think that translation has gotten it kind of wrong because there is a word for that. It's moikeia, and it's used just about three words later. And it's not the word that, that Jesus uses here. In other words, what I think he is teaching is this, that there are a range of illicit sexual things that could occur uh, of a certain strata that could, call, that could give one grounds for divorce. And I've already enumerated many of those. But I don't think it's limited simply to adultery. Because if it were, if that's what Jesus meant, I believe he would have used that word, and he did not. Now let me say this. Some of you will think, okay, so, wow, is, is it wide open then? There's all ki- any kind of sexual acting out creates a cause for divorce here? Well, I think what we also see is that while divorce may be permitted, may something may rise to that level, it's never required... And it's never desirable. It's not required. It's not desirable. Marriage is meant to be a teacher in our lives. It's not just a social arrangement for a little bit of an easier way of living or more economical way of living. 
or just a little bit of support for life's circumstances. I mean, one of the real harsh things about marriage, and you all know this to be true if you're married, is this. Pretty soon, it doesn't take long, you realize, I married a sinner. All right? Have you had that talk yet? <laughs> and I'm one too. And the two of us, these sinning, broken, you know, flawed people, are joined together for life. What did I do, right? Now that comes later. <laughs> but we are meant to be uh, an instructive kind of way for one another. We are meant to be an agent of God's sanctification in the life of the other person. You're going to see things in their life. You're going to know them many times better than they know themselves. You're going to know their sin nature, their propensities, their weaknesses, and you're going to be in a unique position to either right condemn them for it or to try to encourage and build up and love them through it. And so marriage is not just about making everything easier, but in a lot of ways, I think something that couple or, or young single people or old single people for that matter, if you're not married and you're contemplating it, one of the questions you should be asking about someone that you're considering to marry is this. Do I really want this person to see the real me and to be an agent of sanctification in my life? Do I want this person to see me and to be a teacher to me of God's goodness? That's a question you should be asking. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, marriage does not so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as to confront you with yourself. Right? Because I know who I am in, in this covenant community with my wife. And my weaknesses show up, believe me. And if you don't, you can ask her and she'll tell you. They show up a lot. And I learn about who I am and who I'm not. And about what, where I need to grow. Now, Look at verse 10 with me here and notice the disciples' reaction. I think this is important. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Okay, now the reason I'm camping on this for just a second here is this. Because some people will say, all right, Eric, you said the word porneia means a range of meaning, a range of illicit immorality, sexual immorality, so, you know, there could be all kinds of reasons for which a, di a divorce might be appropriate. But in fact, notice what the disciples' reaction is, right? Their feeling is, if marriage is this locked down, if the covenant is this secure, if it's that hard to get out of marriage, if that's the reality of it, then who would ever get into it? So don't hear me when I say that there's a range of things, think that the range is this big and it can be anything and everything. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because the disciples feel like, wow, that's really restrictive. Thus their reaction. Verse 11, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by an by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, the word eunuch, not something we throw around very often today, simply means not living a sensual life, okay? Not living in a married kind of way. Um, but the point that Jesus is making here, quite frankly, is this. Marriage isn't for everyone. And for some of you, that's good news this morning. Because sometimes I know the, it's never the intention of the church, but sometimes the implication or the, uh, the unintended message that people hear at church is that somehow if you're not married, then there must be something wrong. Or that marriage is the only right and legitimate end option. 
And that is not the case. God has designed some people to live a single life and to be satisfied and content in that. And so Jesus basically walks through. Here's, here are different reasons why this occurs. And for some people, they simply should not marry. And they should be happy with that. Um, and so I want to close with maybe just these final two thoughts here. And the first is this. If you are here this morning and you're single, and your heart and your longing is to marry, let me just try to pull one, one bit of false thinking out of your mind, and that is this. Marriage will not answer all your problems. If you're single and you think, that's it, i just got to get over that threshold, i just got to be married, just got to be joined to another, tired of being lonely, tired of whatever, I just want to be married, marriage will not solve all of your troubles. In fact, it will bring in a whole raft of new ones. For those of you who are married and you're in that raft of trouble and you feel that, divorce is not the answer to your problems. And too many people go through the difficult waters of marriage and there is some kind of trespass that occurs and the question comes in their mind, is this cause for divorce? And if it just rises to the threshold of cause, sometimes they punch the trigger and say, that's it, I'm out, thinking that divorce will resolve the issue. The issue is still there. But now there is not this covenant construct of marriage to walk through and to walk it out. I know this is a tough passage. I think I've touched every hot button issue of the day in one single sermon. And I want to say this. There is no way that I can perceive every wrinkle or nuance of how this is hitting your life, but the Lord can. And so I'm teaching these broad principles, but I'm going to pray for you, pray for all of us, that God would take his word and that by his spirit, he would set it right in your heart where it needs to be. So would you pray with me? Father, as I look out on my friends here, I know that there are all kinds of stories. Some are divorced because they didn't want to be and they couldn't stop it. Some are divorced and they know they made a mistake. Some are divorced and they had cause, but life is still hard. Some are longing to be married. Some are dealing with their sexuality. All of us are wrestling with these questions as it relates to the world around us. God, I pray that we would just relish the truth of your word that you have made us male and female, that we are image bearers of yours, that you're doing something wonderful with mankind in our diversity, that you celebrate diversity, and that marriage is a good thing even though it is incredibly hard. And singleness is a good thing even though it is incredibly hard. So God, may we believe your word and may we celebrate it as the truth and as good news for our very lives. And I pray that by your spirit, you would help each one apply what they need to and to follow you as you're leading them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.